and welcome to the Future of Football, brought to you by The Athletic. Now, last week we asked some searching questions about the people who own football clubs. You can still find that podcast. This week we're going to talk about the people who pay the bills, the fans themselves. With football about to resume behind closed doors, does the game take the loyalty of the fans for granted? It's arguably never been easier for fans to make themselves heard, but are the clubs listening? This is The Future of Football, brought to you by The Athletic. And as ever, we have three athletic writers with us, Andy Mitten, George Culkin and Liam Toomey, all with us for the next 50 minutes or so. Do do you think, I'll ask you at the end as well, do you think this podcast will have a positive feel to it, Liam? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I suspect not. I suspect not, but given that i am maybe been drafted on here to be the young... um, optimistic one and i'm not particularly <laughs> optimistic i'm not even sure i'm particularly young anymore but <laughs> well it's I, all I relative it's to have that flavor <laughs> it's all relative to who else you you are on with andy i did say <laughs> to the producer during the week where we put the uh, the guests together for this one that there is a danger that you me and george could come from the same position here yeah and maybe it's not reflective of a lot of the people who are, are listening i think we're from a generation where going to football matches was very important and we're probably in a minority now i think most people who watch football do not actually go to the games they watch through a through a screen and i like to get lots of different opinions from from people who read read my work but it's definitely changed i can remember going on the stretford end for a big cup game in the late 80s and being really offended when this lady said, move along now, the part-timers have come because it's a big game. The armchair fans have come to a match. And I think now, if you're an armchair fan, you're one of the 98%. And it's <laughs> the people who go to the games who, who are actually in the minority. George, do you, do you expect us to have a positive uh, feel by the end of it? Well, I'm certainly not going to contribute to that in any way, shape or form. Um, and I, I, can't, I can't believe that's why I've been asked here. Uh, mis- misery being my middle name. No, I mean, I do agree with Andy on this. I mean, I, I find it I mean, I find it very sort of difficult to get my head around, you know, the notion of games being played behind closed doors because for me that stops being football. I mean, it, it definitely stops being football when you add in, you know, kind of players being tested and, uh, you know, this idea of social distancing on a football pitch and the idea that you can you can kind of train for a team game on your own as it were and you know but again I'm I'm of that generation too my first experience of football live football was in the 70s and all I can remember is the people you know I can remember being surrounded by people I couldn't see the game itself because I was too small and you know that that is ultimately what I think football is it's that sense of communion it's that sense of community it's getting together with people you're all buying into this kind of ridiculous notion. I mean, you know, football is ridiculous. All sport is ridiculous when you kind of get it down, take it down to its sort of basics. But you all buy into it because it's an expression of who you are and where you come from. And it's the day itself. It's the drinking beforehand. It's the drinking afterwards. It's mixing with friends. It's family, all those things. And so, you know, the, the the sort of notion of football being anything other than being in front of people is is one I find kind of quite difficult to to appreciate. But I I do accept that I'm not in the majority of that. 
I wonder whether throughout this whole discussion that there will be a difference as well, Liam, between if we're talking about being a fan of a Premier League club as opposed to being a fan of a lower league club or a non-league club. Yeah, definitely. I think there will be a huge difference because in the Premier League, there, there's very much the cult. We are in the age of the armchair fan when it comes to the Premier League. Everything around the the Premier League economy revolves around um, TV, TV money, and the the money from Sky and BT subscriptions. Whereas in the lower leagues, that that equation is still markedly different, and that is why lower league clubs are so much more worried. Obviously, all football clubs are worried about loss of match day revenue but it matters so much more for the lower league clubs because they don't have that that tv safety net um and so it it is a very different discussion i think as you go down the the football pyramid but with with the with the premier league there is no doubt that i think what we're about to see behind closed doors is a diminished product you know with with, with no fans it will affect the game in ways that we know and in ways that we don't know yet and we're about to find out. I mean, and one one of the things that really powered the Premier League's rise, wasn't it, in popularity was that one of their innovations was to put their microphones right next to the fans so that that noise would come through on the TV and we're, we're going to have these kind of ghost games and, uh, and it'll be really interesting to see. It's almost a, a kind of weird experiment as to... <laughs> what what football really is like without fans i think there is a there's something very interesting there actually i think if you look at the premier league fans fans attending matches are now the least important people of all but towards i mean i that would be my argument and it's probably a slight exaggeration but not much and then towards the bottom and then certainly in the the bottom two divisions league divisions they're they're arguably still the most important people i spoke to a very senior figure at a efl club yesterday who said that um, basically the start of the new season, which effectively comes on July the 1st, is going to be a cliff edge for clubs. And he talked about clubs going bust very soon because there's at the moment there's no guaranteed income. And for those clubs, particularly in the bottom two, the television money is so tiny and it's all about gate receipts and suddenly that's going to stop. And um, And that person is kind of, you know, saying that the Premier League basically... You know that football should bail itself out, and that the Premier League should contribute to 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 helping those lower league clubs who are going to struggle. Whereas, if you look at the top of the, if you look at the Premier League, match day fans are the people who are thought about least of all. Well, exactly, and therefore, which is a question which gets asked a lot at the moment, Andy. When when we're eventually through this, whenever that may be, will things change? Will fans at a Premier League level still be? considered last of all by their clubs as a lot of them feel like as George has just said or will it change I think you follow the money that has been the trend but there has been some good moves in the last five years I've been writing for 25 years about ticket prices and they have been curtailed it's the the maximum you can pay now is 30 pounds going in a way end for a Premier League game I can remember buying a ticket at Chelsea for £28-29 in in 1993 and I can remember Arsenal charging 62 quid and there was a game where Man City played at Arsenal and a lot of the journalists it became a theme of that game and I remember reading one report 
from a journalist who said that was worth every penny of the £62 for them travelling fans. And I thought, that's that's really patronising that. How do you know? Because I, I, had, I had mates who were City fans who travelled down from Manchester. And they're working class lads. That was too much for them. But it has improved in recent years. I think they have realised that fans are integral to their, quote, product. But they are still bottom of the pecking order. And as a journalist, when I write, I'll write feeling pretty strongly on issues like ticket allocation or or when the games are scheduled. And you still get some ridiculous stories where Man United will play away at Crystal Palace and to get the last train back to Manchester, you have to leave the game 20 minutes before the end. And I got one of those trains a few years ago and it was full of hardcore, home and away Manchester United fans who missed Zlatan Ibrahimovic's winner. And I thought, this is ridiculous. These are your best customers, if you want to call them customers. And I would write that, and most of my readers, certainly on Twitter, they don't really care. They're not bothered. It's not an issue for them. They're all they're bothered about is who Manchester United might be signing, and things like ticket allocations and atmosphere. It's not a big issue to them. But for the people who buy United, we stand the fanzine. We do who buy it outside the ground. It is a huge issue to them, and I found myself the last five or ten years feeling very protective over that community because. These people do matter. The lengths that they go to are considerable and they shouldn't be taken for granted and a lot of time they are. I think that's a really interesting point, that. And and because it also highlights that there are collective issues that affect fans of whatever Premier League club they may support, may support whether it is ticket prices or scheduling or sometimes... sometimes the number of games, if you if you follow a successful Premier League side and they have European games on top. And I, I give an example of this, Andy, in that yeah, I can remember a few years ago uh, being at an Aston Villa-Southampton game on a Monday night and there were hardly any um, Southampton uh, away fans at, at that game. And I, and I and maybe they'd had a game on the Thursday or something like that as well. And I'd pointed out, you know, you, you just can't keep expected fans to pay what it is and turn up. But fans don't stick together on that. Then, then you know, you'll have Portsmouth fans piling in going, well, you know, that shows their loyalty. God, it, you know, if, if it had been us on a Monday night, we'd have, we'd have sold it out. And it, it always boils down to the loyalty of each fan base rather than collectively working together to improve things for the fan. There's been a few examples. Manchester United and Liverpool fans have, have worked together. You mentioned the European prices. That's been a big issue. As recently as one year ago, Barcelona were charging visiting English clubs over £100 for a ticket. The Spanish clubs are notorious for it. Even the so-called clubs of the community like Athletic Bilbao. Well, not really, because £83 for a ticket doesn't really re- reflect that. So pressure's been put onto UEFA and, and that has been changing. But your other point is if you're following the big clubs, just because you're from Manchester or Liverpool and you follow a club who's big and successful doesn't mean you're rich they're pretty working class cities i know people who go to every single game and they support the local team it just happens to be manchester united they shouldn't be charged more so in some ways it's actually harder to be a fan of one of these clubs because you don't get tickets you get rejected for tickets all the time and you apply for tickets and there's a good community within the fan base you help each other out it's always done at face value so there's a Man United and Liverpool's fan base is very similar uh, like that. But your point about 
taking the rise out of other fans. Manchester City, Man United fans do it all the time out of Manchester City. But at one point last year, City played at Wembley for the fourth time that season. And you had a situation where Man United fans who've never been to a game were laughing at Manchester City fans who were about to go to Wembley for the fourth time that year. And one of them was my brother-in-law and he couldn't afford to go to Wembley with his two kids for the fourth time that year. And I thought it really weird that you've got fans who've never been to a match having a go at someone who, okay, City aren't going to sell out, but he's a good football fan. He chooses the wrong team. Of course he does. He's a a good football fan. I was going to say there's a kind of related point. It isn't necessarily about um, successful teams or successful clubs, because I'm about to mention Newcastle, but they've, they've been on Sky's Monday Night Football 14 times on a, in a row in the Premier League. They've been away from home. So in other words, the last 14 times they've been on Monday Night Football in the Premier League, they've been away from home, and that is not a coincidence. And it's been, it's been raised by the Club Supporters Trust, uh, with the Premier League, and they've been told that basically Sky Sky can do what they want. And, you know, there's a reason why Sky do that. It's because, you know, they do care about, as Andy says, you know, they, they care about the product, so they care about the optics, they care about the noise, and, they're you know, clubs are prepared to offer sort of cheaper tickets because they know that, they you know, they want their stadiums to, to be full and... That's not where the where most of their money comes from, so they can afford it. But they're they're very very happy to inconvenience uh, supporters. You know that's the last thing they think about. It's the same. It's the same reason. You know, there's football on a Friday night. That's not to make life easier for people who go and watch games. Saturday tea time, Sunday tea time, Saturday morning. It's the people in the stadium are the people who are thought of last. It's the same with VAR. That doesn't help you if you're in the stadium. And it, it might, you know, hopefully over the course of the season, those results might even out. I mean, that's a completely separate debate, and I don't want to get angry about that as well. But, um, but you, you know, if you're in a stadium, you know about it last. You know what's happening last. And, you know, we, we've moved so far away. I mean, you said at the top of the show, you know, pay, the, the fans pay the bills, and they don't really anymore. And certainly not at Premier League level. And... You know, there is this very, it's an interesting thing. There's a very delicate balance, I think. Um, You know, Newcastle, just to use them as a case study, they've, this season, you know, what did Newcastle stand for? They don't stand for winning. They don't stand for being good at football. They don't stand for trophies. They stand for, you know, this kind of almost mythical quest to do those things. And they stand for kind of turning up. And this season, they've had to give away 10,000 part-season tickets for nothing to fill the stadium. And I'm sure they've done that. I'm sure the club has done that, not because they're being altruistic. It's because how it looks and how it feels and how it seems. And, you know, I do worry about, I worry about that when football is just a commodity. And if you don't buy into it anymore, if you can't buy into it anymore because it doesn't represent who you are and what you stand for, then it doesn't, it kind of doesn't exist anymore. And I do feel that, I do feel that about football now coming back with nobody there. I, you know, I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be sort of interesting to start with and, uh, you know, we'll tune in and it'll be a novelty and stuff like that. But um, it feels, it kind of feels unsustainable for me. Do you think fans can make their voices heard, Liam? And I'm not talking about, um, you know, fan TVs and, you know, so on and so forth and YouTube channels, which I'm sure we'll come on to at some point. I I mean in 
regarding these issues that we've been talking about? I think they can, and we've seen examples of it being successful. You know, Andy mentioned the cap on on away tickets to to thirty pounds, and um, you know that's an example of of collective action working. And 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 I know the the football supporters federation are, are always active in liaising with the the different um, supporters trusts and supporters groups at across the Premier League to, to try and get more of these things onto the agenda. But there are limits to what they can do, partly because, as George said, match-going fans, particularly in the Premier League now, are so low down on the pecking order. And also because I think, you know, the, the, the fundamentally tribal element of football mitigates against fans banding together. It doesn't make it impossible, but it just makes it that little bit harder. And when you've got further divides of you know match going fans versus fans on on social media that maybe don't face those those logistical issues in supporting their team and don't experience don't fundamentally experience supporting their team in the same way um i think it makes makes it that bit harder to have that kind of common empathy as as fans and to to generate the kind of collective action you need i mean the most emphatic form of collective action is to not go (laughs) to to do what what newcastle fans or some newcastle fans have done in the last year or two but how long did that take you know how how many years of directionless mike ashley ownership did did it take to to work up the the level of appetite for for even this level of um, non-attendance. So I think that, that shows how difficult it is across the Premier League. And particularly when you're talking about the top Premier League clubs, I know people who are season ticket holders at Chelsea and at Arsenal. And and, and the feeling is as well that a lot of them aren't, you know, they, they are very disillusioned, I think, by their, their, their general experience. And the the, quali- the the level of satisfaction is quite low, but at the same time, there's a level of fear that if they give up their season tickets, they'll never get them back because there is still yes. a yeah. fairly health- healthy waiting list for people who want to be where they are. Is, is, there, is there a level of satisfaction um, down to how well their team is performing or just the whole general match day experience? That's an interesting one, and I think winning obviously helps. And the like, I know, I know from first hand that in seasons when Chelsea won the league, the atmosphere has been fantastic. But I think we, we've and we've seen at Arsenal obviously that that years of relative underachievement um, can can turn things the other way and make them a little bit more toxic. But there is a there is a level of anger I think that bubbles below the surface, which springs from the the feeling that you are being ripped off a bit and i think the you know if, if you're going into a stadium on a match day thinking i've paid an awful lot of money for this and particularly when premier league football is now priced and marketed as entertainment rather than as sport that changes the expectations that fans have when they go to games they expect to be entertained they exp- they don't they don't ex they won't settle for unscripted, you know, sporting drama. They 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 expect more than that. They expect not just to win, but in some cases they expect to win a certain way. And so you've had a rise of, you know, managers complaining about, you know, your Mourinho's and Allardyce's in, of the world complaining that they don't get uh, a kind of long enough leash from fans because they're not perceived to play attractive football. 
that's another aspect of this. You know, you change the expectations of fans going into stadiums and I think you change, you raise the bar for satisfaction maybe to a level that it's not always possible to reach. It depends on the owners as well, doesn't it? I mean, if you if you have owners with cloth ears, then it doesn't matter what you do. If you have, I mean, so for example, the decision, you know, of Liverpool to furlough their staff, now that was greeted with sort of, you know, non-playing staff was greeted with 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 sort of outrage and horror and disappointment on behalf of you know Liverpool fans they made a you know they voiced that and the club quickly reversed that decision and accepted they got it wrong you have to sort of all be in it together i suppose i mean you know same thing at newcastle well newcastle fans expected that of of mike ashley and of course it didn't get reversed it's still there you know whatever newcastle fans said that wasn't going to change mike ashley's decision you know there is that delicate balance that we all have um you know if if owners sort of present the way they run the club putting putting people first which is you know personally that's how i think businesses if we have to think of football clubs in those terms that's how they should run they should be thinking about their shareholders or their customers or the people that work for them now if you do that then you can walk into a stadium not necessarily thinking that your team's going to win but knowing that they're going to try and knowing that everybody there whether it's players manager staff directors you know, whatever, owners are all aiming for the same thing, then you can kind of get behind behind that and you can f- kind of forgive, you know, you can forgive mistakes because you know that they're, they're made honestly. You know, it's that, it's, it is that infrastructure that you have to have at a, at a club. You know, it's a collection of people. If you're all in it together, that's fine. If you have bits of it that don't work like that, then it falls apart. So it's interesting you say that, George, because um, you know we we all get to to watch a, a lot of football up and down the country, and and I would say over the last eighteen months, the grounds that I have visited that have given me the most pleasure, or have been rather the most atmospheric, and the opponents have been a variety of different po- opponents for these three clubs. It's not necessarily you know a big game every time, a Wolves, Leicester, and Sheffield United. That's very interesting. I mean, Leicester, who uh, I'm trying to sort of get my head around what the what the what the kind of common themes there. But I mean, there are well, there I, are, I would there, imagine there, I, I would imagine a combination of either owners or managers or players all feeling like they're pulling in the same direction. Yeah. I know Sheffield United have had ownership issues uh, and stuff, but you know, if you go to Leicester, the fans are put at the heart of of that yeah. club every single time. You go and watch a game at the King Power. Sheffield United, I suppose, have got the promotion bounce and they're having a successful season. But, you know, you look, you have a, a manager there who is a fan of the club as well and everybody's pulling in the same direction. And Wolves, I suppose, are growing under under an ownership that appear to want the best for the club and the fans. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know, that's, again, that, that should really should be the essence of... You know of what football is and what what a club you know what a club should be. Everybody banding together. That's what it means. I mean, fundamentally, that's what it means. And uh, you know, I think the Leicester example is very good because they've you know they've maintained a relative level of success relative to their own sort of recent recent history and have done important things like you know around the training ground and they're very uh, forward thinking and a lot of a lot of those things and are certainly sort of overachieving in terms of uh you know the natural order of things in the premier league and it so it, it it is possible and you know if you then have a stadium which is a sort of 
happy, ferocious place, there is a you know, there's a positive dividend from that too. Because Andy, I haven't I haven't just picked you know old school grounds that are atmos that are atmospheric. There, there is a you know Leicester Leicester is a is a new ground like so many other sort of identical grounds up and down the country, whether that's the Riverside or Stadium of Light or St Mary's or whatever it may be. They're all built off the same kind of plan. They've got foreign ownership as well. You know, it's not about our oh, local hero putting money into the club. It's foreign ownership, and yet. The whole match day experience works if, as a fan if you go to the King Power. Yeah, I've been a few times, uh, both with Manchester United, but I've also seen, I saw Leicester uh, play Chelsea this season and play play Everton last season. I'm not sure quite why the reasons are. I think results are important because I think that football fans are incredibly loyal and yet feckless at the same time. And... And I remember January, you were hearing Man United fans saying, I'm not quite feeling the buzz. Well, that's because the team's lost four games this month. And you don't hear it when they've gone 11 games uh, unbeaten. That said, there's far less criticism from the fans actually at the game than there is online. And I always find that interesting. Is that because the person you're abusing is only stood 50 metres away from you? Is that because you're getting something else out of the day? that your team might draw or lose, but you've still seen all your mates. You're not sat behind a screen isolated at home. You've still had a good day. You've still gone on uh, after the match. And I I went to Sheffield United, where you mentioned, uh, a year ago, just when they were coming up. I saw them come up. I met great groups of Sheffield United fans who've been going for years, and I was genuinely pleased for them. If I'm looking at it in a slightly more cynical way, I could say about all those clubs you've mentioned... Why were you only getting 16,000 three years previous? Their gates, Wolves' gates, I've got a lot of respect for Wolves as a team, as a club, as a city. They were getting 15,000 in 2016. So that was probably below um, where they're at. So when they come to Old Trafford and sing, we support our local team, I'm thinking, well, you weren't quite supporting them in the same way three years ago when you were 14th in the championship. And I think that there's elements of that. Fans go... And, and it might be easy as a Man United fan to say that because the team have got a, a record of winning more more often than not. And they've still got this huge latent demand where th- they could sell the biggest games out by, by 30 or 40,000 more tickets than the ground has, has got the capacity. But it's interesting. I watch football at all different levels and sometimes you can find a lot more enjoyment at a real lower lower level because you do feel it's community you do feel the town are behind this team and that can be good in other ways as well I quite like that and doesn't have to be a team with the best names in the world playing for them sometimes if a town sees their team go on a cup run it's one of the greatest feelings in football that 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 togetherness maybe they've got local players as well and it's not possible now in the Premier League because I remember Swansea City being able to outbid Sevilla for players a couple of years ago and just thinking, wow. I remember Bournemouth outbidding AC Milan for a goalkeeper a few years ago and thinking, wow. But that's how it is. There's that much TV money. And also, some of the prominent journalists who work for these TV companies, they're not necessarily uh, that quick at coming forward and criticising their paymasters. So they might privately agree with me when I say that um, it's... Shocking, or like George says, Newcastle United playing all these games on a Monday night, which is ridiculous because geographically Newcastle's further further than anywhere. 
Um, and they might privately agree with that, but they're not going to say it on screen because they're getting the wages paid by the broadcaster. And, and it was Sir Alex Ferguson who said, you're shaking hands with the devil. You, you take all this money and that compromises have to be made. And most people get that. And I think it's absolutely right now that away fans are limited to the £30. That was, that was one of the biggest um, jokes in football, that. But I actually think now... 30 quid to watch your team away from home at Arsenal, at Chelsea, at Newcastle. I don't think that's bad value for money. I don't think that the, the, the ticket price issue is the issue it was a decade ago. Manchester United and other clubs have not raised the ticket prices for a decade now. It's 26 quid to sit behind the goal. There's been some... You've got to credit the clubs here. They've made some really good measures because they've realised either that too many of the tickets are going to tourists or that there's an ageing demographic of fans inside the stadium and they have done something about it. Manchester City have got season tickets for a fiver for kids. This is a great way of engaging um, the, the local community and the people who, who choose wrong, wrongly to support that team. <laughs> you, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the tourists there. Do you, do you have a problem with football tourists? I, 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 don't, I have a problem when people say it's geographic because some of Manchester United's best fans are from nowhere near Manchester. The Cockney Reds. I know someone who travels from Truro and has done for 30 years and he puts far more of an effort into watching his team than someone from Manchester. So I think they're an easy target out of town fans and you do have clubs in 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 different countries with a nationwide support, which I think they should be proud of. I spoke to a director earlier from Schalke 04 in Germany. They've got a nationwide support. Juventus have always had a nationwide support even when they've not been doing well. However, when you go to Liverpool away and you know that your mates have not been able to get a ticket for that game and you see thousands of tourists who are wandering around and asking where the stadium is. I mean, I've sold the fanzine outside Old Trafford and people have come up to me and asked where the ground is. And I'm like, well, you know, it's that 76,000 seater right behind my shoulder. And... <laughs> It, it, it borders on being offensive. So I think that there has to be a balance and sometimes that balance gets lost when you go to some of those massive matches and you think, how on earth have you got tickets? And they've got tickets because they've paid top dollar. But that is at a cost of, of diehard fans who miss out on them tickets. Because there's a huge part of me that obviously agrees with you and then there's another part of me that thinks, well, am I being hypocritical to agree with you if, you know, when I was on holiday... In America in the summer, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in New York was go and see a, a Mets baseball game. Or, you know, if I'm in, I had a weekend in Rome many years ago, oh, I'd love to go and see Roma on a on a Sunday afternoon. And and I think if you are, if you're a sports fan, you go to a city where there's there's sport. There, you want to go and experience it, don't you? So you do, you do. So and I'm with am you. I being and hypocritical then? I think we maybe we both are because I do exactly the same thing. If I go to another city, do I then become a football tourist? All right, slightly different because I'm a journalist and I'm probably working and making money writing about it. But it's full of contradictions. There was a, a young lad came up to me at the Partizan Belgrade game at Old Trafford this season and told me that he'd flown from Seattle to watch Manchester United. And I, I had a lot of admiration for him. He just said, I can come once a season and I watch every single game and I get up at daft o'clock to watch Manchester United and I didn't have a problem with him. I just didn't. I couldn't. You can't help how you feel on these things. Maybe it's collectively if you're walking outside a, 
a stadium and, and you see someone with a little flag on a pole directing a group of 200 tourists, you think, where have those tickets come from? But it isn't a black and white issue. And I do exactly what you do. If I'm in America, I like to watch the baseball. And I think you, you can't just close grounds. People have to go to a game for the first time. You can't expect everyone to be hardcore supporters. That's completely wrong as well. And there is an elitism among football fans as well. And if my mum wants to go to a game once every 30 years, why shouldn't she? I think you can't close it, but there has to be a balance. The way the game has changed is also a big part of this as well. I'm exactly the same. You know, I go to my my family live in Oregon, so I always go and see the, the Portland Trail Trailblazers when I'm over there and I love it. And I kind of fit, buy a hat and I buy a T-shirt and it's that I do exactly the same thing. I mean, I would argue that one thing that you know, is slightly different is that sort of same sense of tribalism, following teams home and away, and also football's just utter... I mean, the, the tribalism that we used to see inside inside every stadium every week, I mean, you know, not 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 necessarily at every ground, but pretty much most of it. Now, at the set, now I, that's my background, and I loved it, but I also would go to games sometimes on a weekend feeling scared and feeling scared for my own physical health. And that, you know, that gave you a big buzz and it gave you a lot of adrenaline and it made you shout even louder when you got into the stadium. But clearly, you know, that's not something you can have <clears throat> moving forward. We also want stadium, you know, we want stadiums to be clean. We want, we want them, we want authorities, we want clubs to treat us with respect. And, you know, so stadiums have become safer, more family friendly, the food's better, the drink's better, all of those things. You pay more for it. It's quieter. Um, and, you know, people can afford to come from abroad and from elsewhere and to come and watch matches. I mean, part of me yearns. I want St. James's Park to be absolutely loud and terrifying and, you know, in a good way, in a positive way. And, you know, I want that. But at the same time, I also know that I can't have that anymore because the price you had to pay for it was you would sometimes see outside the stadium after matches. And, um, you know, part of it is, you know, you have to, the noise has to come in a different way. And it, you know, maybe that is people having to learn the words to the Bladen races before they get to the stadium, you know, a bit. And, um, you know, we have to just accept, accept that life's moved on a bit. Just to say on the, the tourism element obviously i'm speaking more from a london stadium's point of view and and london's a massive city probably has more tourist fans at, at, at games than than anywhere else in the country but i actually find that the atmosphere problem if you consider it a problem at, at premier league games is not confined to tourist fans that are passing through i think particularly you know when you're at chelsea when you're at arsenal even when you're at spurs at their new stadium for a game that those teams are expected to win, um, the, the it's not just the tourists that are quiet. You know, the the general mentality of a of a football fan now, I think, is to wait to be entertained. Um, at least, there's, not all the time, but sometimes. No, the, the, the same applies if you're waiting to not be entertained as well. I can <laughs> I can I can assure you. <laughs> exactly. You're either either way, positively or negatively. You're, you're sitting for, sitting back, waiting to be appalled. You're waiting for the team to get you going one way or the other, and I think um, and I think that goes back to what we mentioned earlier about the moment that. Um, top level football started to market and price itself as entertainment rather than sport I think you fundamentally change 
the expectations of the people walking through the door. And I, I think that that contributes to, to the way they act when they're in the stadium and the way they probably feel about it afterwards. And the, the other thing you do as well, Liam, and, and, and numbers have backed this up as well, the, the more you, you market it as uh, entertainment in that sense, you, you, the more you're also celebrating the individual and what you see more and more now from certainly from younger fans, and there are various stats to, to prove this, is that it is the individual superstar that they want to go and see and maybe not necessarily the team that that superstar is playing for. And Ronaldo's transfer from Real Madrid to Juventus is the most high-profile example of that, of how Real Madrid's social media what dropped by a million or something or Juventus went up by a million on that Ronaldo move. And that is more and more about what the young fans want. They want to see the player, not necessarily the team. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, that's also a very American culture of fandom. Um, you know, George mentioned the, the Portland Trailblazers. I'm sure he knows Damian Lillard. Um, yeah. and, and, and the NBA is, is all about the culture of the individual superstar rather than the team. And I think you'll, you'll have a lot of NBA fans who will follow individual players when they when they switch teams in in free agency rather than just being lifers for a particular particular team i think it's inevitable that as kind of a american sport culture bleeds into european sport culture and certain things merge i think part of that is inevitable but we're also as you as you alluded to chappers we're, we're kind of in the age of personality generally aren't we where i think um the, the the bigger and brasher the personality, the more people are drawn to it, and the more powerful and bigger the brand that someone has, the more people are drawn to it. So I think that that's inevitably going to happen as as football goes on. Do, do you think that started with the Messi Ronaldo battle in Spain, Andy? I first noticed it when Japanese players came to Europe, and the shirt sales would 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 surge if um, there's a couple of high profile players. Nakamura was one of them, and. And at the press conferences, there'd be like 27 Japanese journalists and only four from the country where the player was playing. And it's definitely um, a younger thing as well. And who are we to say that that's right or wrong? If somebody wants to follow Messi or Ronaldo and argue about Messi and Ronaldo, I've got a 13-year-old brother and... He follows individuals, but he also goes to Manchester United. So maybe he's torn. Maybe because he's got the two, the two forces saying, "No, you, you, you support this team. What you do is you go to games." But not everybody's that lucky to be in a position um, to, to do that. And I think if you follow Barcelona, Madrid, um, the, the super clubs are quite interesting because you've got your traditional match-going fans and. Those clubs are from huge cities, huge international cities. They're big enough to fill vast stadiums. And yet I saw the reaction of Barca's international internet support, which were probably a lot of them were probably attracted to Pep Guardiola's glorious football a decade ago. And when that dropped, when those incredibly high levels dropped, they were furious. And Ernesto Valverde lost his job. And I think it's a factor that you had all these people complaining because it wasn't the Barca of a decade ago. And this these markets are now important because the clubs are going to them and saying, we've got X million followers on social media, so you should sponsor us. And commercial revenues are now higher than gate receipts. So you've got all these different factors merging in and 
making a very different change, whereby the clubs then feel that their loyalty is actually the people who go to the stadiums. They're the ones we've got to look after, in Barca's case, because they're the ones who are voting for the club president, or in Manchester United's case, because they're worried the atmosphere is dropping that much after 20 years of ignoring the fans. And there's so many different things at, at play here. And then you've got to look at the overall Premier League product. They like full stadiums. Spain punishes clubs which don't have full stadiums. They don't want to see empty seats on screens in Vigo or the clubs which struggle to sell out when they're pushing their products around the world. And if we're going to touch on behind closed doors. I was at that last game in Austria with Man United. It was awful. It was awful. I felt like I hated it. And the team played well. The players did everything that was asked of them. They scored goals. I felt sorry, though, for, for Lask. It should have been their, their biggest ever night. And I just thought, if this is going to continue, and fans have got very strong and very different opinions on this, it is far, far, far from being the real thing. Yeah, and, and actually, the interesting thing, just to expand on that, George, is, and I was discussing this in, in connection with cricket in, in recent days, Um there will be a feeling of people just going through the motions to get the TV money, rightly or wrongly. That that's with without fans there and this disc, you know, discontent about some not wanting to come back and this that, and the other. It will all feel like it's just. I know we're going slightly off point, but it will all feel like it's being done just to get the money. Well, and the fact is, you know, it's just not something. I mean, yes, we're talking about playing behind closed doors, but we're not. You know, we're not talking about what that actually means for fans, for the people who won't be there. I mean, you know, the idea, you know, when when for whatever unusual reason has happened in the past that games have been played behind closed doors, it would cause a sort of huge, it would cause huge uproar because you're talking about people at some clubs, there's not, you know, all clubs have them who've gone to see, you know, every game home and away for the last 20 years and all that. And then suddenly, you know, suddenly all that stops. And, you know, I... I agree. I think it, it 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 doesn't. It's not football anymore for me. It becomes something else. The idea of football is being with other people and it's community. And I know that's kind of a bit misty, uh, you know, misty eyed and and things like that. But really, the, the almost not the thing I'm least interested in is the bit that takes takes part on the field because you know obviously that's why we're kind of all there to a certain degree. But I'm I'm just not. That's not the bit of the of the afternoon that interest me i'm interested in the stories i'm interested in the personalities i'm interested in talking to people i'm interested in feeling that surge of anger and adrenaline and happiness and sadness and for that to happen you've got to react off other people and you've got to feel what they're feeling and you've got to see it and witness it and it it is about money i mean I, there's no there's no getting away from that i mean you know the phrase that gets used all the time is sporting integrity, but what what that means is money. I'm afraid. You know, it's just it, we just have a different definition of what sporting integrity means now. It means money, and you know I understand all that because if these games don't happen, then it's trouble for clubs because of you know shaking hands with the devil, whatever that great Fergie phrase was, and certainly you know in the championship and elsewhere, it it that the games will have to be played because the alternative is too is too serious um is too, is just too serious but it's not football it's not football for me is one of you moved to sit under a waterfall i'm just <laughs> having a shower chappers <laughs> um, I, i'm i'm in i'm in a storm 
Seriously. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It sounds unbelievable. Yeah, um, yeah it, it is. <laughs> the um, uh, George and Andy have both mentioned shaking hands with the devil. And, and uh, in in the terms of Fergie's quote and, and dealing with, with television and broadcasters, I also wonder, Liam, bearing in mind the importance of social media followers, as Andy has said, to these clubs, whether that is also shaking hands with the devil, because if you are so entwined in social media and social media then brings you fan TV and fans' voices and the way to make a noise as fan TV and fans' voices is to be as extreme maybe at times or as hypercritical or as angry as you possibly can be to make a name for yourself, whether you are then creating problems for yourself as a club as well. Yeah, definitely. I think... um... This is probably a subject for a for a bigger podcast or a, a, certainly a different conversation. There is, but there is no bigger podcast than this one. <laughs> yeah, come on, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Oh, let, me, let me rephrase. This is probably a subject for a different podcast. All right, but, excellent. Uh, well rescued. <laughs> but uh, you know, social media in the last ten years has changed the whole nature of human discourse. So um, it, it makes sense that as a football club, I think if you if you get involved in that for what it can for what it can give you for the positive things it can give you in terms of reach you are also vulnerable to the the negatives of the the way social media has fundamentally changed the way we talk to each other and the, and the way we talk about things um and what you've seen you know with arsenal fan tv with the you know you now have individuals popping up doing kind of hot take style 120 second videos where they're basically just ranting or shouting at the camera about their team or about a certain player um and they get huge huge responses from that and it everything has kind of become a a a culture war generally but we i think we've seen that increasingly be the way that football is discussed and football clubs can't escape that that when they when they have Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts and they're and they're selling their interactions on quarterly conference calls or um or to potential commercial partners they can't ignore the fact that social media will will also expose them to a level of criticism and a level of maybe unfair maybe slightly hysterical uh scrutiny that they've that they've never had before so in the case of Arsenal I think we saw that come full circle because they didn't get rid of Wenger immediately um, but over time I think the people at the club realized that his position had been made pretty much untenable not just by the results on the pitch but because of the hysterical nature of the discourse on social media not just Arsenal fan TV but obviously that was the kind of flag bearer for 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 the whole issue um and they realized that they were never more than one bad result away from an, from grabbing the pitchforks and going to march again so cl- clubs can't can't escape that now and and i think you know you see you will see when football goes be- goes behind closed doors clubs will actually have to lean further into um trying to to attract those social media fans because they won't have the physical ones in the stadium and that will also expose them to the the ways in which social media has changed um how we talk about 
everything, not just not just about football. That's that's interesting, though, isn't it? Because when you think about, I mean, I I would have that rule of thumb. I would always have that rule of thumb that kind of no matters what what's said on Twitter and social media, that the way you judge how a support feels is actually. Saturday, you know, Saturday and and the game. So, for example, you know, you can have a, a team can have three or four bad results, and you know, you can have three or four bad min- minutes. And on Twitter, that's calling for the manager to be sacked and stuff like that. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but some people do that. And but anyway, you have this, you know, this enormous kind of build up on Twitter and anger, and it's kind of all you can see. Um, and then you go to a stadium, and it's actually, oh well, that's actually, you know, it's pretty quiet. Um, <clears throat> there isn't this sort of huge revolution or people getting on the barricades and things like that. And it doesn't sort of happen. And I would always say, okay, well, that's that's a more accurate reflection of where a club is or where a fan base is than the stuff you... But is that the case anymore? I mean, is that the case anymore if you have a million followers on Twitter and Instagram and things like that? And then what happens? what happens when you're behind closed doors? Does that relationship completely change? What do you judge it against? And, you know... A lot, part of the time, again, I would say that if a manager loses a stadium, and I've seen it happen sort of very dramatically, you know, say, for example, at Newcastle or Sunderland, well, you know, Alan Pardew was a great example, and he let, he he kind of carried on for a few months afterwards. But once, once it had turned beyond a certain point, he was never, ever going to get it back, and it became game to game, game to game, game to game. When that isn't there anymore... Is it do we do we do we actually have a pure experience in some ways? Is it only then about results? Is it or is it about do, would clubs take social media and all that kind of stuff into a, into account? That becomes a very different sort of relationship, doesn't it? Louis Van Gaal lost Man United um, six months before the end, and yet the stadium was still full every week. And when he won the FA Cup in his final game, he was booed pretty disgracefully, actually. And they were match-going fans who who booed him. But the with the um, with the fan the fan channels, I speak to Arsenal fans who've gone for years, and their issue is two or threefold. It's one, who are these people? We've not seen them before at matches, and in the hierarchy among fans, credibility is really important. So if you suddenly see someone rock up with a camera and you've never seen him before, people ask questions. And then it's the the hypercritical nature of them. It's that lowest common denominator. They felt that people were laughing at their club because Tottenham fans were tuning in and going, look at these idiots ranting. And then there were more serious issues there. You're thinking, are they taking advantage of people who are mentally ill here? And and laughing at them. And then there was um, an issue where, who's behind this? Who's making the money here? And in the case of some of them, there are big media conglomerates behind. It's quite cynical, and you could say that that's uh, exploitation of fans, but they don't reflect reality. If you're in the stadium, as George says, it is completely different. And I first noticed it in maybe 2012. Manchester United had the audacity not to win an away game at Swansea. They drew 1-1, right? On the way to winning the league. And the reaction online was fury. And I thought, wait a minute. This isn't the reaction in the stadium. Football teams don't win every game. But online, it was there was genuine offence that they hadn't won 5-0. And, and ultra-critical and too much. And it just didn't reflect the reality. And yet, when you have these see people having a meltdown on the cameras, they're the ones that get the views. So who's worse? The people for watching them. Because nuance and context goes out the window. Nobody wants balance like they used to do. But... There should be balance. Football isn't. Now, in, in that 1-1 game at Swansea, 
it wasn't a bad result. Swansea had a decent team. And football teams don't win every football match. So there's there's cultural shifts here. There's generational shifts as well. And there's shifts in the way that the technology and the clubs are using the, the, the global influence uh, to watch uh, football and to consume football. I say cultural shifts, generational shifts, technological shifts, and and over the next twelve months, just to just to conclude, you you would expect this to be a very a very odd period for football fans. So much of the the discussion about coronavirus and COVID nineteen has centred on on the players and their safety and managers and training and so on and so forth. But for football fans, over the next twelve months, at the least, you would expect Liam. It's going to be a very strange existence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are going to have, we don't know for how long, but we are going to have a fairly sustained period of, of ghost games and of football being played in a in a bubble. And I think in a, in a time when, you know, match-going fans have been feeling more of a distance from the clubs they support than ever before, you're now putting physical barriers in the way as well as emotional and, and psychological barriers and and it'll be very interesting to see what the consequences of that are long term I mean it, it seems inconceivable to to even think that that football attendances and, and broader interest in the game wouldn't fully recover from this in time but you know, there there may be a, a shift in the way football is, is supported not just in England but around the world anywhere in which fans have been kept away from football for, for a long time and it's hard to say at this point what form that will take but it, it's certainly I think it, we can say with a fair degree of confidence that it is not going to be what it was before no and away from the Premier League away from the Premier League as well Andy you know I've mentioned several times on these podcasts you know I'm less than a mile away from from Altrincham, who are in the National League North. I always try and go watch Altrincham if, if my schedule allows it. And I don't want I don't want Altrincham to be out of existence in, in 12 months' time. I want to be going going back down there and being able to have a beer and watch a game of football and switch ends at half-time, because you can still do that in the National League North as long as it isn't Chester coming to play, and then obviously it has to be segregated more, and so on and so forth. But, but if, you know, if you're not supporting a team that's in the Premier League, you will not only be missing going to football, but worried about your club's existence. One of the greatest things about English and British football is the depth of support that you can go to clubs in the fifth, sixth, seventh tier and you can get four-figure crowds. It's incredible. You don't get it in any other country in the world, not even in Germany, which has got fantastic football support and higher average crowds at, at the top level. And you mentioned Altrincham. It should be mighty Altrincham, actually. My brother scored the penalty, <laughs> which got Altrincham into the conference, away at Neneaton Town. And I was listening from afar as the guy from Radio Warwickshire said, substitute coming on now, Mitten looks a bit of a handful. And I'm punching the air going, get stuck into those Warwickshire whatever. And, and why, why is football doing this to me? It was wonderful that football can do that. And Manchester's a big footballing city. Liverpool is the north of England, Glasgow. And it isn't just about the big clubs. There are great football teams all around. One of the best ever jobs I did was seeing Prestat in town go away in Europe and beat a full-time Latvian team on penalties to go through in the Europa League and the captain running up into the press box to give me a hug. That, that is up there with, <laughs> you know, going to Turin. Well, not quite. 
But you know, we are fans. We're observing. I'm not. I'm not scoring for Altrincham. You're observing the spectacle in front of you, and shouldn't just be about at the top top level and. The, the, the smaller clubs, they matter greatly to the fabric, the social fabric, the community fabric. Not everyone likes to go to big stadiums with the big crowds. Not everyone can afford it and it should be protected. It's part of the, the national psyche. George, final word? I don't know how to top that, really. Um, that was that was kind of beautiful. I want to applaud. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, you have to be worried. You have to be worried about those clubs because... Um, you know, without gate money, they don't survive. They don't exist. And so if we want them to survive, there is going to have to be some form of redistribution, I think, certainly through the league pyramid. And, you know, perhaps perhaps there'll be a way social distancing can work. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, it's an, it's an existential it's an existential issue. I mean, if you get people out of the habit of doing something, and I'm not just, you know, I'm not talking about the people who, who've been going every week for, you know, for, for donkey's years. But if if you can't watch it, I mean, you know, presuming games will be on television and radio and things, but if you can't watch it, you might do something else. You know, you might do something else. If you can't go to the pub and watch it with your mates, is the same appeal to be sitting in your house watching it at three o'clock on a Saturday or, or whenever. And I kind of worry about that. But then... Again, you know, it's it's now sort of looking so far in advance. Does there then come a point where clubs actually do have to think about uh, an active way of getting people back into their stadiums? And maybe that does mean listening to them a bit more. And maybe that does mean with treating them with a bit more respect. And maybe that does mean making games more accessible, uh, you know, certainly in terms of timings and kickoff and pricing and whatever, that there may actually be a shift in relationships in this. I mean, that's a romanticised view of what might happen, but it's going to be, I think there's going to be a very rocky road to get to that point. Okay, but it's good to end on a romanticised view. That's 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 what we want. That's what we hope. Thank you, uh, George and Andy and Liam. And don't forget, you can get 90 days free access uh, to The Athletic and all the articles that Andy, George and Liam and all the rest of our writers have written uh, by going to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Thanks to the three of them and we will see you again soon for another pod.